Good time and man, the late great Gary Stewart kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you today as always. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's broadcast. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, a long time presenting sponsors. It is truly great to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies. Thanks for dropping by once again. We've got a great show lined up for you today, and I'm going to tell you all about it momentarily. But uh, first, you know, I hope that you all have been able to get into the outdoors during this whole pandemic. And it seems like we were on the home stretch. Now cases are going up because people are going out and being a little lax. So I don't know. I'm not telling you what to do. And COVID's probably not going to kill you, but I don't want it. And certainly don't want my girls to get it as they have asthma. Uh, so. Just be careful. But we were able to go down to the coast last weekend, back to Galveston, this time with my family. Took Henry and my dad out um, on Father's Day and went after some trout. And the best part of the day was when Henry hooked into a 30-pound black drum out by an oil well. And I tell you what, <laughs> he fought it for like a minute. And it was just stripping, drag, taking line. Just, I mean, he couldn't keep up with it. And he's like, Dad, I, I can't do it. And so he handed me the pole. And uh, we caught the fish together. It ended up being, like I said, right at 30 pounds, 34-inch fish. Biggest fish he'd ever seen. And to have my dad there to share that uh, was, you know, it made it even more special. Because he's the one that initially got me interested in the outdoors. And particularly fishing. He's not a hunter, but lifelong bass fisherman. So something that we did a lot together growing up and and to uh, have him share that with Henry was pretty special so hope uh, everyone was out there making similar memories and if your dad is no longer here um, hopefully you have those memories to look back on and, and smile fondly when you do well back to today's presentation you know what to do pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire pour yourself another cup of coffee and that beat up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll and off the top a fascinating discussion to get into regarding Icarus technology. Literally, the International Space Station is rigged up and now able to track wildlife movements pretty much anywhere on the planet. And Yale professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, Walter Yetz, has been uh, very involved with this project and how it will help us understand wildlife movements, particularly uh, going forward. And, and I do have a concern that I'm not sure the Icarus team shares or has even thought about, but uh, I will ask um, Professor Yetz about that as well. So cool stuff coming up there. Then at the uh, bottom of the hour, our old pal, Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch will drop by. Uh, what is the forecast for 2020 and 2021? Uh, what about how how they collect the research? That's another big thing. I, I don't think people understand all that goes into actually counting quail on the landscape. That's a very detailed process. And then uh, funding is a big part of what they do as well, which 
the Park City's Quail chapter of Quail Coalition and Quail Coalition itself um, are instrumental in helping them stay afloat because it's not cheap running a 4,700-acre research facility. Um, but oh, one other cool thing about it is translocation. You think about you know the successful translocations we've had or relocations with pronghorn and turkey, um, bighorn sheep, you know, all kinds of species across North America. But bobwhite quail just don't do as well. They're such a fragile species. And I think Dale and his team have started to crack the code on how to effectively translocate those finicky little bobwhites. Uh, so interesting stuff there. That's what we're going to get into today. Going to be a good one, guarantee you that. Let's do a, a quick giveaway. What are we going to do today? How about a Lone Star Ag Credit prize pack? I've got a shotgun sleeve, camo cap, and a game bag, all compliments of our longtime sponsors, uh, Lone Star Ag Credit. And to enter to win, just uh, email the word quail. That's quail to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Coming up next, we'll explore wildlife movements from outer space with Professor Walter Yetz of Yale University on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. One fullness still is what I heard the bartenders say. I never thought my own life would ever turn out this way. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. I can be high, wild, and free Where the Mackenzie's meet the heavens You can hike through God's out of street Where the dog sheep have dominion Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, High, Wild, and Free. The name of that one from Chad Slagle. And, uh, Chad, apologies, man. I finally gave that bow away. See, Chad came to the studio, oh, it's probably been eight years or so, and he brought a bow that he made by hand. Uh, he's a passionate longbow hunter. I uh, brought it to the studio, and I don't think that he meant to leave it. Um, actually, I know he didn't, but after eight years, I think the statute of limitations has run out. So I gave it to my cousin this past weekend, and uh, his boy is enjoying shooting that thing. But seriously, Chad said just keep it when he forgot it. But uh, finally found a new home for it. It had been sitting in my closet for going on seven or eight years now. And my cousin's son, so I guess my second cousin, he saw it and was like, what do you do with that? And I was like, you want it? So he was excited to have it. Thanks, Chad. Um, we're about to get into a very interesting discussion with Yale professor Walter Yetz. But before we talk about the Icarus technology, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by First Light and the Ash Gray 
lineup. It's new for this year. And muted tones certainly have their place in your hunting gear lineup. See, whether you're hunting sheep in the Northwest Territories or Alaska or maybe like most of the PHs where in Africa, uh, muted tones seem to be their favorite. There's certainly a place for ash gray. And First Light has just about everything available in that new color scheme. So check it out. It's ash gray. You can find it at firstlight.com. First Light, go further. Stay longer. With that being said, let's bring on our first guest today. Joining us from, well, actually his home because Yale is closed due to the pandemic, but longtime Yale professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. He's an author, uh, speaker, and someone who is certainly much smarter than I am. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor Walter Yetz to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. So let's get to know a little bit about you. Well, actually, first of all, here's an interesting question. Has Yale decided uh, whether or not classes will resume in person or not in the fall? Or is that kind of up in the air? <laughs> you know, um, I should defer to, to whatever the latest uh, official uh, Yale uh, uh, announcement on that is. We, yeah. we are certainly offering classes in fall, uh, and it, it's going to be in some sort of mix of online and, and in person. And the exact setup uh, is, is still in its official form uh, being discussed and, and decided on. And uh, I think there is a target for early July at the latest to make the formal announcement to the students. But okay. uh, the dates have been set, um, and, and we all look forward to, yeah, uh, less of a hectic and more of a planned way of, of reengaging in our edu- educational mission on, on both sides. Uh-huh. Fascinating times we live in, but uh, yeah, I was certainly curious about that. Um, so yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your area of expertise. Yeah, happy to. Uh, you know, I I uh, started out as a sort of natural historian. In fact, my, my dad is a, is a hunter back home in Bavaria where I grew up, and I would be out with him a lot, uh, and we're not talking uh, the big, big uh, animals there necessarily, but it's more like uh, looking after the landscape and uh, and it's wildlife rather than a, a, a true hunting of the sort that we may know more in, in, in here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's that early exposure and uh, uh, running around in the Alps and then expanding my range to, to other countries in Europe and Africa that I, I got more and more excited about just the variation of life and, and uh, uh, the variation uh, not just in a single place, but also how how it dramatically varies uh, from place to place. Mm-hmm. So how you find different species in different parts of the world, different corners of of the Alps, uh, high elevation, low elevation, uh, different parts of Europe, and uh, how you sort of encounter very different communities of species. And what's behind all of that? What's behind these these uh, astonishing differences in, in wildlife and, and, and plants uh, that, that we see. And that then kind of uh, led to my, my academic interest in, in researching that more and more and taking on different approaches and technologies to do that at larger and larger scales. Wow. So a little bit of a background in hunting there. That's cool. Your dad uh, <laughs> obviously raised you in the outdoors. I was recently sent this, this article concerning using space technology to track and better understand and, and monitor wildlife and, and all those fascinating 
species and, and ecosystems that you just mentioned. Um, but yeah, to better understand and monitor their movements, and this is called uh -huh. uh, ICARIS. Actually, uh -huh. it actually stands for International Cooperation for Animal Research Using Space. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty interesting in and of itself. What is the what is the history of this technology, and uh, and just kind of give us an understanding of of how it's going to be applied uh, for animal research. Yeah. Yeah, no, really, really thrilled to do so. And, and I, we can sort of dive a little bit into that technology and perhaps then take a step back into sort of the larger picture, right? How sure. we're a suite of new ways of studying uh, biodiversity, studying species at, at the planetary scale. And uh, this, though, is a really, really exciting development. And I think it's, it's going to be transformational for, for quite a, uh, a few aspects of, of uh, biodiversity science and, and beyond. So what we're talking about here, and I should give out give a, a shout out to Max Planck and particular Martin Wikelski is a Max Planck director and uh, friend and colleague of mine uh, who has been spearheading as a leading as a, in, a, in sort of a leading role uh, uh, spearheading this project uh, Icarus. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, ultimately a, a technology that allows you to read out GPS tags and I'll say more about that in a moment from the space station. So we, uh, thanks to the Russians, by the way, uh -huh. uh, they, uh, uh, it was a German-Russian corporation to get that box, that receiver box up to the space station. Um, and you know, the space station has different modules uh, uh, and it got installed on the Russian module. Um, Martin had approached the US side as well, but at the time it didn't work out. It was the Russians that, that, that uh, were up for cooperating. Finally got up there. It was about a year of, of technology uh, problems that had to get addressed, but it's now switched on and working, and we're in the midst of the testing phase. And what this does, um, uh, it's really, in a way, just a receiver box that is able to receive signals from tags that are uh, on the ground uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. Not doesn't go quite to the poles, but, mm -hmm. but most everywhere else. Um, able to read out signals from those and then send the information back down to Earth. So oh. many of you may be familiar with, with at least images of, of like a wildlife ecologist with a, like a, what's called a Yagi antenna or some sort of antenna running around trying to triangulate uh, an animal that's got a tag on it that would send like signals in a certain frequency. That's kind of the traditional way of doing wildlife well for like for example in texas we have a, we have a bunch of uh, eastern turkey restocking that we do uh -huh. they all have yeah. those antennas on them so just to you know but exactly yeah. and um they may be but increasingly there there are other types of tags and there are actually already tags in existence that use uh, uh that a little bit that use satellites to read out the information a little bit like like little satellite phones um attached to an animal now those tags are really big and super expensive, so thousands of dollars. So that's unlikely what's on those turkeys. Okay. Some different technology. Yeah. Um, It'll just be a radio transmitter on the turkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the radio, so those are traditional that be nearby, and then you, you, from one place you can figure out whether the animal is around. If you want its exact location, you have to triangulate it to and hope that it didn't move in the meantime to get its exact location, its exact position. Mm -hmm. And that's how. Actually, I did it for part of my PhD, and others have been doing it for decades to study animal behavior, uh, animal movement, um, and that's still pretty much the case. 
except for this other technology that satellite-based, super expensive and big, large, large mammal elephants or, uh, on whales. Uh, and it's also been used for buoys in the sea. So these are essentially pieces of technology that, that send signals to a satellite and it's, it's uh, uh, like a satellite phone. And there are also GSM tags now that use like a cell phone technology to transmit information. But all of these are, uh, are not really uh, scalable to a global system. They are expensive, they're big. Uh, and that's what's so different about this new Icarus technology mm. that, that uh, we are talking about here. So uh, we are talking about tags that are super small, currently five grams, but already new prototypes bouncing around that are around three grams. Yeah, that's that's very. Tax shouldn't weigh more than five percent of the the body mass of an animal. So uh, we're talking here thrushes, large rats, uh, and increasingly smaller and smaller songbirds that could actually have these tags on. And it seems like something uh, like that would be expensive, though. No, so they're now down to about a five hundred dollar or so uh, price range, uh, and and they should drop more and more. going forward. I mean, it's still quite expensive. It's not for your just sort of around the house use. Um, and they're, they're, for now, this is really all focused on, on scientific research. That's what, what uh, these are, are, are built for and will be used for. Uh, but it's, it's at a range where, you know, if you have a research project through one of the science foundations of, of a few hundred thousand dollars to study uh, behavior or to study population development uh, in a particular area, you can start to build those tags in saving the amount of man hours in the field because what these tags do, thanks to technology developments actually that happened in the, in the cell phone arena, mm-hmm. something like a GPS uh, unit has decreased in size dramatically over the last year. So every cell phone now has a GPS unit, in it, right? Um, and a lot of tr- a transmission technology has also dropped in size thanks to the cell phones. Um, yeah, I don't even take a GPS into the backcountry anymore. I just make sure my phone is charged and exactly. put all my phone, right? maps exactly. on there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, those things are now super small and super cheap. And those tags, in a way, there aren't uh, like we're not talking about rocket science type technology. We're we're uh, pre- they're pretty used, much using um, normal uh, commercially available pieces uh, that they're putting together and uh, there's a solar panel on, on the back of it to save battery to, to, to get ex- uh, extended battery life. So that's pretty nifty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you need to think of, of smart ways of attaching those tackles. So there's, there's a backpack uh, setups for, for, for birds um, and, and then for, for mammals, it really depends. So the whole, whole way, a variety of ways to attach these uh, in, in a way that's obviously uh, not impacting the, the individual and its behavior. So it's yeah. quite a, a bit of dec- decades of research been going into that. So there are these tags. They are able with, at that size, five gram size, with that sort of battery, you're able to collect a fix, sort of GPS location, say every half an hour or even more frequent. And you can do that for days at a time, weeks at a time, months at a time um, uh, via the space station. And that's what's so uh, exciting here that um, instead of having to run around, run after an animal physically, uh, you, you're able to collect uh, its occurrence, movement information, uh, fully electron at the space station. Yeah, I mean, that's leaps and bounds from when we, you know, uh, hog dogging is a big pastime in Texas. And 
in order uh-huh. to collect their dogs, the the houndsmen would when I this is ten, fifteen years ago, you know, they'd pull it out big old radio uh transmitter uh-huh. and they'd have to point it in the uh-huh. direction to try to get a beep to yeah, figure yeah, out where yeah. their dogs were. Uh, exactly. Now everyone has a, them, yeah. most of them now have a Garmin that does it. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, uh, yeah. but this is even way more advanced than those tech than that technology. Um, yeah. Especially yeah. from the size standpoint. And, yeah, size and and eventually I think the price is going to come down too. And 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 as I said, this is focused on research. But uh, I mean, eventually other uses maybe may come about. But but for for any research, also research that that's relevant for for anyone. Uh, or insights that I think are interesting to anyone that's just curious about wildlife behavior and 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 uh, wildlife change around them. Um, this is really really uh, a really exciting development. Well, it is certainly groundbreaking stuff. We do need to take a break. When we come back, I want to hear what you hope to learn through this Icarus technology um, first and foremost. And then I have a concern as well that uh, I think we need to address. So are you available to stick around for another segment, Walter? Delighted to, to, to be on your show. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. You've heard me talk about the big chingone, but what about its little brother, the little chingone? Uh, if you don't need space for a family of five like I do, the little chingone is perfect for you and your hunting partner, whether that's your son, daughter, cameraman, or your lease mate, whatever the case it's the Little Chingone. You can find it as well as All Seasons' entire lineup of blinds and feeders at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back with more from Yale Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Walter Yetz, on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. three rounds in the Kate McCannon. Hey guys, Cable here for Quiet Cat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. Quiet Cat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a Quiet Cat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, Quiet Cat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. I saw a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding. I saw a white ladder all covered with water. I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. And it's a high, it's a high. It's a high, it's a high, it's a That's Lone Star Outdoor Show's own Charlie Daniels, the great Charlie Daniels, bringing us back. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for spending a part of your week with me as we are knee-deep in a fascinating conversation concerning Icarus, the technology that will track wildlife from the International Space Station. 
And we're going to pick it back up with Yale Professor Walter Yetz in just a second. But first, this segment brought to you by Vortex Optics and the Fury HD range-finding binocular. If you're like me, less can be more, especially in places like the backcountry. I don't want to take a rangefinder and binos. I want to take as little gear as possible. And that's why the Fury has become such an instrumental piece of my backcountry kit. You can find the Fury, as well as Vortex's entire lineup of top-notch optics, right there at vortexoptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. Um, all right, well, Professor Yet certainly appreciate you sticking around. Let's start here. And this is a, a very broad question. And you can go into as much detail as you want, but... What are we trying to learn from a scientific standpoint when it comes to using the Icarus technology? We'll uh, be able to study uh, migrations, uh -huh. uh, long-distance bird migrations, for example, in a way that's just previously not been possible. Uh, so yes, there are some first insights from large like eagles and large raptors that were able to take some of these large attacks I was talking about earlier. But the whole songbird migration is still, there's still so much mystery there about where exactly individuals go, uh, what they need on their way, um, how uh, 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 environmental change is, is affecting stopover sites, um, wintering sites. Uh, all of that sort of information is going to be much more readily attainable through, uh, through, these, through these tags. So I think there's a really exciting... Uh, opportunity for, for, for actually new discovery. We'll, we'll identify migration routes or distance records or physiological records uh, like uh, uh, in, in a way that, that just wasn't possible before uh -huh. because we couldn't study animals in that way. Well, and as, as a passionate waterfowler, I think about, you know, um, Ducks Unlimited biologist told me recently, mm -hmm. like, there's no more well-studied population of birds than North American ducks. Is like there just isn't, mm -hmm. and this would be cool to yeah. yeah to to apply this technology to the migration trends because the landscape has changed so much. There's more stock ponds and and uh, and mm -hmm. then you go up to Canada and there's less nesting habitats and so they've mm -hmm. changed their behavior. It would be cool to to have a modern day understanding of of how they're adapting. Yeah. Yeah, and and do so at the large scale, you know, so at the at the range wide scale even. You know, my my lab's uh, research is in, in what's called macroecology. So we're really interested in the in the macro patterns of biodiversity and its change. Mm -hmm. And and you're speaking to exactly that, right? Uh, um, through uh, there are already all sorts of other technologies that are that are helping us here and and allowing all sorts of new uh, insights, uh, remote sensing. Uh, most of all, right? So thanks to satellite-based uh, Earth observing technologies, NASA technologies, uh, we, we are uh, uh, getting daily high-resolution images of landscapes and their change. We're able to understand how the greenness with the seasons and, and is affected by human uh, uh, change, uh, encroachments, uh, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, how, how wetlands, for example, are getting affected, right? So we're able to get a really detailed 10-meter resolution, 5-meter, 1-meter resolution uh, understanding. This uh, GPS tracking uh, technology uh, that, that is able to operate at scale over large extents um, provides sort of a biological complement 
to that and and uh, will allow us to now study the biological response, study in more detail how, say, a given duck species is using its habitats, how it does so similarly or differently, whether it's in Canada in that type of wetland or a slightly different wetland than down in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, most importantly, it will allow us to, to this, this technology, Icarus, will allow us to, to monitor and study the biological response to change, right? It will uh-huh. allow us to study how animals are uh, are changing or not changing their behavior and their their use of the landscape in response to to environmental change. Fascinating. So yeah. I think that could be one of the most important applications and one relevant to anybody who cares about yeah the the status of of of, of wildlife uh, around them. Now I read in this New York Times feature also that. Uh, Icarus, I don't know if it's capable of, of doing this now, but you know, at some some point in time, might be able to use animal behavior to predict like earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, as well as uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. things like the next avian influenza outbreak. Yeah. So I don't know if you can expand on that or not, or if that's all just. Yeah. Now let me talk about the, the epidemiological uh, side a bit. Uh, uh, birds and and bats actually, moreover, and, and bats obviously are are being invoked in in the COVID-19 mm-hmm. uh, initial transmission, are carriers or, or hosts of of, um, uh, of diseases, right? That uh, sometimes affect uh, just animal populations, but sometimes actually can can uh, affect humans as well. So they're, they're, they're disease vectors. And the, the dynamics, the, the temporal dynamics in space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how animals are connecting different parts of the landscape, different regions even, is is really really vital to be able to understand um, uh, potential effects on animal populations or indeed humans from from disease outbreaks. So, for example, uh, migration understanding better the migration routes between um, uh, Asian and European waterfowl was was really really uh, important for for better understanding some of the the, the diseases, influenza, and, and others that that. Uh, uh, wrecked havoc over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, equally, understanding better uh, some of the connectivity that's, that's of landscapes that that animals provide here in the U.S. will be important uh, going forward as we will undoubtedly encounter uh, new uh, animal-borne uh, diseases uh, in the future. So this technology can provide a really, really important picture that you otherwise are just not able to get, right? Because you really need to be able to follow an individual um, in its path to understand uh, that that aspect, particularly helpful for any diseases that are are, are transported by animals that move large distances, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really look forward to just seeing more of that data getting collected and then used, not just for conservation and biodiversity science, but also for uh, health science and uh, and other applications. Yeah. You mentioned also that idea of an early warning system potentially, right? Uh, uh, there's observations out there that animals change their behavior in advance of natural disasters, and and I mean the the the, the exact scientific verdict is still out there as to how and whether we can measure that with GPS tracking, but but there's real potential, and uh, uh, we look forward to to more through Icarus. Uh, and other GPS tracking approaches to see more uh, tests of, of how this could, could play out and whether indeed there may be a signal from animals we could pick up about an impending mm-hmm. earthquake uh, or tsunami that 
that scientific instruments are, are, are not able to pick up quite as readily. Sure, sure. Well, and I also think about... So animals, go, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, what you can say, also think about uh, possible benefits to help fight, you know, in the, the anti-poaching effort when it comes to specifically Africa's megafauna species. Absolutely. Um, there is a, a new technology development associated with this this project that we were talking about that that uh, uses what's called accelerometry data so information about um, movements uh, uh, quick movements of animals to to uh, uh, under, to perhaps better understand particular types of behaviors say uh, falling over dead right after having been shot suddenly mm-hmm. and those are potentially uh, uh, able to provide uh, information about about uh, hunting, illegal hunting, poaching yeah. in in uh, in real time to national park managers in Africa and, and things like that. So, yeah. so that is another potentially really exciting uh, and important conservation application. Yeah, that would be extremely beneficial. I've done the I've darted a rhino in South Africa, and and that experience left me as you know I felt bad for the species. It's probably one of the the most emotional things I've done as a hunter, um, but you you actually experience the hunt. You just don't kill the rhino. Um, but I mm-hmm. I was sad that it's come to that for the rhino because of poaching. Um, it's not hunters mm-hmm. that are you know mm-hmm. over there just stacking up hundreds and hundreds of rhino notes of poaching and and that's why the the money that I invested to have that experience went directly back into funding anti poaching. I mean they had to have anti poaching twenty four seven, three sixty five. It it never stops. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this definitely seems like something that could help. And I don't know how that would look, but I'm sure as this technology progresses, um, that can all unfold in due time. Um, I will say this. One thing that I read that was the only thing that I was like a little bit concerned about was um, Dr. – is it Wachelski? How do you pronounce his name? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, he talked about people having potentially the ability – to track a specific animal on their smartphone, be like, oh, cool, let's see what uh, Bubba the um, elephant's up to today. Well, uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't believe that anthropomorphism is a good thing. Disney does it already enough for us. When that happens, uh-huh, and then one uh-huh. of those animals gets, you know, a hunter legally takes it, then the S storm that ensues from the media, I mean, it's just, it's a can of worms. I'm just like, I don't know if that's such a. That it would really be the best thing for for yeah, hunting, no, you know, it's yeah. And hunting in in North yeah. America here is what funds conservation. I mean, that's the that's the North American conservation model. That's where state wildlife agencies get sixty yeah. percent of their revenue. You take hunting away, that crumbles. I just the only thing that concerned me out of the whole piece was that one that one quote. You know, it's an it's an interesting one actually, and and it's 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 good to to hear your perspective on this, and 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 that will I think it will be good to 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 think more about this going forward, right? How one does that for different types of species in different places. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, first of all, let me say there is something really powerful for conservation to be able to connect people more to individual stories. I'm not talking about deer in your backyard here, right? Or uh, or what usually gets hunted. I'm talking about uh, birds. For example, uh, that are, are threatened, like a crane or so, right? Uh, uh-huh. Species that are really rare, and where you're able to connect more and more people to their stories, including their fates. Which, in some cases, if you look in Europe, uh, cranes, for example, get shot down in Saudi Arabia for fun, right? And it's 
it's and that's not legal at all, right? Yeah. But it's also not controlled. And um, if you you're able to connect more and more people, not in terms of like, I agree with you. The sort of social social media outcry potential is is one to be be mindful about. But yeah. in in terms of you you are uh, if if people just hear about well this species is not doing well and and shouldn't be protected better, that only reaches so many folks, right? In terms of uh, 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 supporting conservation organizations or or changing their behavior in some form that may may ultimately improve that species livelihood. If you're able to make the st- story allow people to connect better with individuals mm-hmm. and and let them connect with the species in that way through individual stories. Uh, I feel it would really, really help uh, conservation overall. You know how, as you said, how actually hunters are are some of the more important conservationists in some places. It's because they actually developed a, a connection with wildlife through individual encounters, right? It's because you you actually looked some of these animals in the eyes, right? That you 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 developed that. And now that's a privilege that not everybody is able to have. And a lot of folks are are glued to their uh, uh, phones or computers. And and this way, at least, you're able to provide them a bit of a an individualized experience mm-hmm. for for biodiversity and and I think on the whole this will be there will be an amazing net benefit uh, that could arise from that now um, I see what you're saying I think there is an amazing potential around uh, alerting illegal hunting or poaching that come, could come about here and and uh, identifying new problem areas uh, I'm if it's a, a species that is legally being hunted and is legally being hunted in the season. Uh, I, I, uh, I uh, think everybody should will be and should be prepared that uh, that may pass away through through a hunter doing legally his thing or her thing, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, I think it'd be good for it to perhaps do some messaging around that and and attach that to some of that mm-hmm. info, saying like this this species is in this region is being hunted in this and that season, so it's clear uh, that that may happen. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, well, you know, that's uh that's the problem we kind of run into is as hunters is non-hunters, anti-hunters will grasp onto the fact that um, you know, giraffes are endangered in Kenya. Meanwhile, in South Africa, they're thriving. You know, and it's just like they're two unrelated populations. Yes, it's the same species, but in one area, sustainable use hunting is is a conservation method and the and then the other one you know, no hunter wants to hunt an endangered species. That's not who we are or what we want to do. Um, we're conservationists mm-hmm. at our mm-hmm. core. But mm-hmm. yeah, we. Uh, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's a maybe there's a role for this to help explain that reality. That just because they're endangered here, like wolves in Alaska, they're they're not endangered in Alaska. Yeah, you know, maybe they are in in uh, somewhere like Washington State. It's just now getting a you know yeah. an influx of wolves yeah. over the last ten years, and but it's not the same thing. So. Um, I don't know. Maybe that could help educate. Yeah. So maybe that there is possibility. Yeah. To... No. I think. I mean, this is a like you, you you bring up a range of topics here that that are probably outside what we're able to talk about today. So I'm not gonna not gonna respond to each of these. But the 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 general thing I would say is uh, I, I think more information in principle can only be useful as long as it's sort of properly shared and 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 used. So also to educate folks about some of those points that you're trying to make, right? Sure. I think uh, uh, it's in that spirit. I think that we should we should use that information going forward. Yeah. yeah well, and I'll tell you this to your credit. I uh, I appreciate your ability to make the distinction between hunting and poaching. A lot of people don't 
can't grasp that concept. Um, so for for I mean I give you all the credit in the world for for no I mean having a firm understanding that oh those are two two completely different yeah yeah yeah, no. yeah. but <laughs> social media kind of sometimes can turn it into lumping it all into the same category mm-hmm. but as to, just to kind of sum things up this is very fascinating Icarus technology who knows where this could go in the future but uh, it certainly has the potential to benefit wildlife and and further your passion of ecology and and evolutionary biology understanding trends and movements. So I certainly do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, was uh, delighted to, to, to be on your show. All the best. All right. Yale Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Dr. Walter Yetz. And he actually told me not to call him doctor or professor during our interview. Just Walter was fine. So anyway, I certainly appreciate Walter's contribution to the show. Certainly a brilliant, brilliant mind. Uh, might have to visit with him again. I was looking at some of his other work on YouTube called the Half World Theory, and um, just what what I was able to gather from the very little that I watched is basically if we can serve half of the habitat on Earth, then you know most species should be able to survive. Uh, it's a lot more detailed than that, but that was the overall gist of it. So anyway, certainly appreciate him coming on today. That segment proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in Marion and San Antonio, Texas. Be sure to give them a shout for your next trophy mount. Also do great work on fish replicas. I've got a 29.5-inch trout on the wall uh, that they did as well. best part about those is you release the fish, let her breed another day. Uh, but Rustic Reminders, you can find them at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com. Up next, we'll shift gears and talk a little quail research and conservation with our old friend, Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Branch right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I ride in a rodeo a few times a year, get stomped and fucked and then I ride enough, I get muddy and bloody, then I swear it off again. British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a Boone or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, They've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. Howdy, folks. I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. I broke down in December I headed for the coast I thought the wind and water Would elevate my mind I surfed 
harvest in the springtime Feeling like a ghost Missing more than ever The things I left behind Robert O'Keefe bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show Presented by Lone Star Beer And Hoff Power Polaris Cable Smith here with you today Thank you so much for tuning in As we are about to get into A little quail research And conservation conversation With Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. But before we talk Bob Whites and Blues, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Check out the new Rio Jade Mexican-style lager, if you haven't already. I'm digging it with or without a lime, and it pairs well with any Tex-Mex preparation. It's the Lone Star Rio Jade Mexican-style lager, Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Let's bring on our next guest, um, someone who is just looking back. Uh, when I pull up previous interviews, Dale has uh, been on the show probably 10 times over the past decade. And so without further ado, here to talk all things quail is our old friend, Dr. Dale Rollins. Dale, how in the hell are you, my friend? Well, doing all right, Cable. I had some issues, health issues last summer, but I'm about 90% over those and uh, looking forward to a... Uh, Productive quail summer. Wonderful. Glad to hear that you are almost back to normal. So, what uh, what have you been what have you been up to in the form of uh, quail conservation or research here of late? Well, we've got some ongoing studies that are just perennial studies out at our Rolling Plains Quail Research Range out in Fisher County. So that's our ground control, if you will. And so we're all the time we're uh, counting quail or radio collar and quail, monitoring them and doing habitat management like prescribed burns, brush management, those kind of things. So that's happening at home, so to speak. And then uh, we've our, we've got a translocation study going over in Erath County, and uh, that was we might want to talk more about that here in a minute. But it's uh, it's looking good. We're pretty pleased with that. And then besides that, uh, when you're in my business, you're always scouting for new ground. So I just got off teleconference with another prospective donor and with my research team talking about another possible translocation effort on blue quails. So oh, wonderful. Something going all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to talk about that translocation in detail in, uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, but, you know, looking back at 2019 and the season that was, how did it wind up for quail hunters? Surely not as poor as 2018. Yeah, well, now, depending on where you're at. If you're in South <laughs> Texas, you're in that Hebronville country, you thought it was pretty darn good, seven uh-huh. or an eight kind of thing. Uh, most of the Bob White hunters in West Texas were flustered, uh, myself including. Now, if you went a little further west and you got in blue quail country, uh, the blue quail hunting was decent. Uh, I'd say, you know, five or six on a scale from one to ten. So it just depends on where you're at. Uh, but for the rolling plains, per se, it was pretty uh, frustrating. Hmm. 2018 and 19 were both bad for us. Okay. Okay. How many, just on average, how many number of cubbies were you pointing a day this year? Well, again, this would be large zone blue quail. Uh, this was at uh, south of Odessa down in some of that Permian Basin country. And we would typically see, I, I probably went blue quail hunting eight or 10 times. And we'd generally see, let's say, an, or somewhere between eight cubbies and 17 or 18 cubbies of okay. which about uh, two-thirds of those were pointed behind dogs. So that's a that's a nice blue quail hunt and a nice achievement when you get that many of them to stick for a point. Uh-huh. Well, and that's how 
quill hunters define success as how many coveys pointed, not how many birds are in the bag. Um, right. So older older quail hunters anyway. <laughs> you know, when you're young, it's it's a lust for blood. And you want to fill that game bag up, and and that's the uh, that's the metric of success. But when you're at a certain age, uh, it's more about the dogs, and and you don't have to be carrying a full game bag to appreciate it. I don't know. I think I'm aging pretty quickly then, because the uh, <laughs> the dog work is the thing that's you know that I I live for, and it, we've talked over the years. I have a lab, and we chase waterfowl, and I take her. Pheasant hunting and everything else, not so much quail, although she will work behind, say, I, I imagine your dogs pick birds up, but there's plenty that have no interest in it. Old Belle, she loves to work behind those dogs. A lot of work for her, and she loves it. Oh, that's why I fell in love with hunting to begin with. So what do you call your dogs, betters? I call mine betters. Uh, they've got a little Brittany in them, so they're, they're typically about three quarters to uh, a little more seven-eighths um, English setter, and then they've got a little bit of Brittany, but they look like setters. And now, do all of yours retrieve the hand? Not all of them will, but most of them will do a decent. My, my best bird finder is not my best retriever, but the other three are, are pretty good, pretty decent. I bring them back. Okay. From a, a conservation standpoint, how important has the Quail Coalition become as far as quail conservation in Texas is concerned? Well, I would say they are the major player. And it's a classic example of, you know, sportsmen footing the bill for the, the management and the projects and so forth. I know for the Rolling Plains Quill Research Foundation, I always applaud them as being the wind under our research wings. Because if it wasn't for them funding our operating costs, uh, we'd be we'd be treading water. Yeah. And so the going back to that trans uh, location project you referenced earlier, it's the Cross Timbers chapter basically the Fort Worth area, um, they made a big contribution towards this project in Erath County. You know, translocation is always dicey with any animal, especially one as fragile as Bob White's. But based off of everything I've read on your website, it's going quite well. Yeah, let me first back up and say the uh, Cross Timbers Quail has been an important chapter for Park Cities as well. And some of the Bass Pro Shops that Park Bass Pro Shops money that Park City's got. So uh, all that's wrapped together, uh, plus a couple of smaller donors, and that's what uh, puts the money into that project. There, our translocation efforts. We started doing them in 2013. Mm-hmm. I tell people we've had some hits, we've had some misses, and we've had some we don't know because we couldn't keep up with the birds. For example, we we translocated blue quail, 80 blue quail, into the Matador WMA back in 2015. And those birds just basically gone with the wind. Uh, we mm-hmm. we couldn't we couldn't keep up with them. We don't we don't know you know what happened to them kind of thing. Uh, our ERAF County translocation, and I guess I would say this is like the fifth of the fifth in a series of translocation efforts we've done. And we like to think of it as an iterative process, and that we're learning a little bit from the last one, and we incorporate those practices. So we think we're getting pretty close to solving the puzzle. And, uh, again, the Erath County effort uh, was uh, started last year, and it was a bust. We had some, and the only thing we can attribute it to was some cold, wet weather on April 14th and 15th. They had, like, an inch and a half of rain. It got down to 39 degrees, and we began to lose birds as a result of that. So mm. we, we can't we can't pin it on anything but bad luck, I guess, in that respect. But this year, uh, we, we've been doing really well, and, um, like I said, we're, we're learning. We, we try to 
we we altered our release technique just a little bit, and that seems to be something seems to help. Well, so Dale, when you guys, you know, you, you said that you've changed some things, um, and you mentioned, you know, an 80 bird effort. It's kind of a pilot initiative on the uh, Matador WMA. What is like the normal number of birds that you guys will put put out on the landscape during a uh, uh, translocation effort? And and in talking with um, you know Texas Parks and Wildlife biologists. When they're doing their eastern turkey restoration, I mean, they're dumping a lot of birds on there, and I think the term is uh, super stocking. I think I might have referred to it as super swamping before. Um, but, you know, the hope is that if they put enough out there, a few will actually reproduce, and and they'll start to have a viable population again. So what does that look like from a uh, quail standpoint? Well, it's a similar philosophy. Again, we don't know what that threshold is. Uh, again, our... Some of our earlier pilot studies in Stevens County and Palo Pinto County and then uh, on the Matador WMA, we were dealing with testing two release types. A hard release, that means we caught the birds in West Texas, delivered them overnight. They were turned loose first thing in the morning on the property. And the other one being what we sometimes call a soft release, but it's probably better called a delayed release. And this is something that we're doing that the folks down the southeast are not doing. Those are all hard releases. We think a soft release or a delayed release. And so we're bringing birds in and imagine the five spot on the domino. Mm -hmm. We've got five surrogators. Anybody in the quail world has heard of surrogators. We're not using surrogators for the way they were developed, but we're using them as a place to sequester quail for a given period of time. And through some of our studies, initially we started off with a four-week sequestration. Mm-hmm. And we put them in those surrogators for several things, for several reasons. One is they have a chance to get a little bit acclimated to the area, the surroundings, the noises, the sounds. It sounds like the quarantine. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're in quarantine, exactly. Uh, but they're predator-proof. Uh-huh. And so uh, we keep them in there for a given period of time. We're feeding them ad libitum feed and water and so forth, so they're hopefully even gaining weight kind of thing. We feed them a layer ration to where... Our hope is that when we release those hens, they don't say, which way is Big Lake? They say, I want to lay eggs now. And so we've learned that that soft, that anchored release, as I call it, is a, uh, we improve fidelity to the area. In other words, the birds there in Erath County, it's a 2,200-acre study site, Hmm. which is really below what Parks and Wildlife would recommend. And most of the birds, probably 85% of the birds, have never ventured off that property. They've stayed there, and part of that is because we anchored them with other birds kind of thing. So that's mm-hmm. part of the uh, technique we think is, is helpful. And, we've again, they've been safe from predators. So when we release those birds on April 15th, we define the nesting season as May 1. We've put as many birds as we possibly could into the nesting season. So we like to think that, again, we've, we've been able to jumpstart their ability to nest and again, it, it's worked according to what our protocols, our hypotheses were this year in Erath County. Hmm. Okay, and so how do you, in talking about nesting success, um, and going back to a visit with Annie Farrell, the uh, NWTF biologist here in Texas, um, I mean, she told me that like turkey nesting success was under 30%, and you think about a ground nesting bird, um, I was still shocked that it was that low, I would think that it's that low or lower for quail, which have you know infinitely more predators than a turkey. I co-authored a paper in the scientific literature back in 2001 
with a colleague from Georgia. And so as part of that, we, we amassed the various studies that have been done and looked at the uh, nesting uh, success or hatch rate over time. And the average across the range of the Bob Whites at that time was like uh, 28%. Mm. So the, yeah, that's, that sounds terrible. But uh, so think one out of three nests that's laid may actually hatch kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We've been able to beat those odds pretty well uh, out at the Rolling Plains Crow Research Ranch. We've got what we define as excellent nesting habitat. We typically have nest success anywhere from 55%. Our highest is like 72%. So that's one of the key metrics in quail abundance uh, and restoration. And it's one of the things that you can have an impact on by giving a quail plenty of places to nest on the landscape. We think that minimum is 300 suitable nest clumps per acre. And by doing that, we've basically foiled the predator's search efficiency. And I always liken it to the shell game at the carnival. Three shells, one of which has a P under it. Who has the odds in their favor? You as the customer or the carny? The carny does. Mm -hmm. We're trying to do that to where we, we want as many places on the landscape as that quail, 500 shells, if you will, or 500 clumps of bunch grass, and then that raccoon or that skunk has to look, much, has to search more diligently and able to find a quail. So it's just an odds game, and we try to shift the odds to the favor of the nest again. Do you guys incorporate predator or varmint control into that equation? We do. We I'll call it predator management because uh-huh. predator management doesn't always mean we're shooting something in the head yeah. kind of thing. Predator management starts with good offense. I mean, with good defense, good habitat. Like I said, I'd like to have 300 to 500 nest clumps per acre to do all I can in a non-lethal approach. But then we also we also try to control the raccoons, especially, and the bobcats. Those two uh, are probably on the top of our list. And if you think of what's happened, try to visualize what you think's happened to the raccoon population over the last 40 years. Well, ag has gone up. Your, bring so. your arm up, you know, right. it's, it's just straight up kind of thing. Yeah. And who's responsible for that? Well, we are, yeah. you know, especially with our deer feeding fetish, because every deer feeder has a family of raccoons come by. We've also, it's called flushing, where we uh, where we enhance the reproductive rate, the uh, fecundity, the reproduction of feral hogs and raccoons because we're giving them so much high-energy feed. So those raccoons are having more kittens. Those pigs are, those sows are having more pigs. And probably the survival of both of those has increased because they've been able to capitalize on what we're doing on the landscape. Mm. But yes, we still employ uh, lethal techniques. You know, we we use a non-lethal approach, let it take us as far as we can. But if we're still having issues or we think we've we've got a situation where we need to quote unquote soften the beachhead, we're going to move in there with some intensive predator control to give those quail the best shot you know we can i've actually shot a bobcat that was i was sitting there i was waiting for feral hogs it was in springtime and uh, here was a this was out around seymour texas and a covey of bob white came into the feeder and i'm sure just like it does every day here comes this bobcat slinking in in the tall grass and uh you know just trying to pick off a quail but i shot it and uh we actually tried to eat it. wasn't very good. <laughs> that was the only bobcat well, I ever tried to eat. There won't be another one. Uh, bobcat is like meat. You know, I, my younger brother, who's now a famous cook, uh, we we thought we had to eat everything as a kid, and 
Kyle, you just can't make Kyle taste good no matter what. But mm-hmm. Bobcat's a light, kind of a light, delicate meat. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not recommending you eat them, but uh, well, it could be. What we did, Dale, is we didn't try very hard. We said, let's get the full flavor profile of the animal. We took the back straps out and just set them on the grill with no seasoning and then tried to eat them. Yeah, yeah not not that great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I've eaten, I've killed a mountain lion, eaten that, and also a lynx in Canada, and they were, you know, light meat as well, and put a little more effort into those, and they tasted fine. But I just can't ever, I couldn't get this that that taste of that bobcat out of my head if I tried. So. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> but we think again, we we are typically if we're in deer country, we are overrun with raccoons, mm-hmm. overrun with them, and so uh, we start a. We start a trapping campaign. Typically, what we'll do is trap at the deer feeders or quail feeders, whatever the focal point is, and we'll move in there with like two cage traps, and we'll move in there with five of the dog-proof traps or coon cuffs, as they're generically called. And so we, our goal is to take out that family of raccoons in one night. We don't want to go in there and just take out one raccoon a night for two weeks mm-hmm. because the mom will begin to get wise. But we want to try to take out the whole litter, if you will, in one fell swoop and again we would apply that same strategy to skunks the bobcats i think bobcats are probably the most important mammalian predator of quail of live quail of adult quail and again we all know how effective hunters felines are in general house cats or whatever and bobcats are that way and i think i think very few people appreciate how many bobcats they've got Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one that just, you know, they're, they're very secretive and you don't see them very often, but if you're in, uh, if you're in quail country, you're probably in bobcat country too. No doubt about that. No doubt. So when you talk about the life cycle of a quail and, you know, when they're the most vulnerable, are there certain times of the year, like once they break off from the covey, they've paired up, does the mortality rate go up at that point? Well, let me ask it this way. I'll, I'll ask my Bob White Brigade students and my Quail Master students, if you start off with 100 eggs in May, let's just say 100 eggs, if we use the national average, 70% of those are not going to make it out of the nest. So they're, you're down from 100 to 30 at that point. Mm-hmm. The survival of the chicks is one of the remaining black boxes that we really don't have a good grip on in quail management. And that's, there's a reason for that is because those chicks are very delicate. And so if you try to monitor them, then you're probably or possibly doing what we call destructive sampling. By your technique of trying to count them, you're actually predisposing them to greater mortality. So what we think is that at 40 days, uh, the best estimates are that about 40% of the chicks live. So if we go back to our 100 eggs, now we're down to 30 eggs that hatch, and now we've got 12 that are, say, going into September like that. And that's you know your typical covey is 12 birds. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on through till April of the next year, you're probably looking at about anywhere from 30 to 50% survival during the winter. So there's just several dr- precipitous drop-offs with with uh, hatching being a big one uh, to 40 days. And then again, um, when the hawks come in in the fall and then when they disperse in the spring, those are three times when you can expect some, expect some peaks in the mortality. That's interesting. The raptors come in in the fall and, you know, our red tails, a lot of them just stay around. We have plenty of birds of prey that stay around year-round. Harris hawks. When we talk about hawks, I like to think about military aircraft. Uh, we've got the what we call bootio hawks. That's the that's the red that's the red tail. That's the Swainson's hawk that we have in the summer. 
Those are the ones you see purchased on the Highline pole or so forth. Those are the B-29s. They're <laughs> slow and lumbering. Mm -hmm. They'll catch every quail they can, but they're not efficient quail catchers. And then you go to the other end of that spectrum, you've got the Cooper's Hawk and the Sharp Shin. Those are the F-16s. They're designed for air-to-air -air combat, and they are deadly effective and efficient in what they do. So they're probably bird for bird. They're the quail's worst enemy, and my bipod's worst enemy, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the, these other ones that we call Northern Harriers, or most people still call them Marsh Hawks. And those are the A-10 warthogs. They just glide out across the habitat, you know, and they're uh, they're getting rodents, but they'll pick up quail and so forth when they can. So hmm. uh, quail's got a lot of enemies, and uh, hawks, typically at our research range, hawks account for anywhere from 30 to 40% of our annual mortalities, mammals, the rest. Mm -hmm. And snakes. We, in 2016, we had seven birds killed by, uh, seven radio collar birds killed by rattlesnakes. Wow. Well, I mean, that does make sense. Ground nesting bird rattlesnake i mean do the math i'm sure it happens quite frequently honestly um let's do this dale we're going to take a quick break come back and find out how you guys conduct your research i know it's very detailed a lot goes into that and then also the importance of organizations like quail coalition when it comes to funding research facilities like the rolling plains quail research ranch we'll get into that next that segment was brought to you by Stealth Cams, WXA and WXV wireless trail cameras. That's right, the uh, AT&T model or Verizon. Both do the same thing, just depends on which provider gives you better cell coverage on your uh, ranch release. But the point is, you put the camera up and it sends pictures directly to the app on your cell phone. It's so easy and it's, it's a game changer. Check it out. It's the Stealth Cam WXA or WXV at StealthCam.com. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Dale Rollins concerning quail research and conservation on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here for Coon Stopper. If you're tired of losing corn or protein to those pesky raccoons, well, here's your solution. If you're running a traditional feeder that has, you know, those long legs that coons like to climb up, rob you blind, well, you just attach the Coon Stopper to each leg. It's so easy. I just put one on a 300-pound all-seasons feeder, and <laughs> the results speak for themselves. Coons don't like it. They basically attempt one time, realize that it hurts, and they're done. Throw in the towel, just like that. It's the Coon Stopper, and you can find it at alamooutdoorworld.com. Hey, this is Chris Knight, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. You're looking for trouble. Little Chris Knight bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Flares. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you for being here as we are talking Bob Whites and Blue Quail with Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch here today. And this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. 
I just got the new Pulsar Helion 2. That's right. It's brand new. I loved the original Helion, but the 2.0 is that much better. Unlike in movies where the sequel always sucks, the Helion 2 is badass. You need to get yourself one, and you'll save 20% off any Pulsar thermal, monocular, or bino when you use my promo code Lone Star underscore PL. That's 20% off and free shipping when you shop at uh, PulsarNV.com. And with that being said, let's get back into it here and pick it back up with Dr. Dale Rollins. You know, Dale, looking at all of the research projects and just the general upkeep of running a place like the Rolling Quail Research Ranch, that isn't cheap. And I know that Quail Coalition and specifically the Park City's chapter have pledged upwards of uh, $800,000 annually just to keep you guys up and running. Um, I'm sure that uh, that's a big part of your annual budget. Well, let me discuss it like this. Most of the studies that are done at universities and so forth are two to three year, two to three years in duration, a master's study, master's study. The Research Foundation and the Quail Research, Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, it's a long-term facility. So we want to be able to know what happens across El Nino years, La Nina years, when we have mucho grasshoppers or, you know, a significant hour. We want to be able to track that over a period of time. And the most expensive part of that is the operating expenses of our research ranch, 4,700 acres. So we've got to be able to keep that going before we can jump off and do various research efforts and so forth. And so, like I said, I always commend Park City's quail as being the wind under our wings because if it wasn't for them, we probably we probably wouldn't be in business. Which is a, uh, certainly a needed business. Understanding the plight of the uh, the Bob White, and, you know, it's no secret that um, this, this species is much maligned. It's lost most of its original habitat. I mean, I've for instance, have duck hunted up at uh, Ray Roberts for years and years and years. It's where I started hunting when I was, uh, you know, in college at North Texas. It was literally like a 15-minute drive to my favorite spot up there. And one of the guys that I hunted with, an older guy, a friend of mine, he said he used to hunt quail there back in the uh, 70s, early 80s. There's, there hasn't been anyone, you know, that has seen a quail there in 20 years. Well, the, the demise of the quail, again, from certainly from from Abilene East. If you were if you took that trajectory and you were in a small plane, you'd be looking for a place to to bail uh, because the decline is so precipitous. Mm-hmm. As we move west out into the rolling plains, it's it's been less precipitous but still declining. Basically, if we were in a small plane, I've got more time to figure out what I'm going to do, and that's been our stance: is we want to stop the bleeding. And then be be able to hopefully be able to move our bob whites further east. So our translocation efforts and trying to perfect those have been an attempt, you know, to get birds back into that cross timbers region and that blacklands prairie region, if it's any of it left kind of thing, and be able to link up with some of the projects uh, that are happening further east. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I I told you off there I'm on the same lease as uh, the Quail Coalition executive executive director. Jay Stein there in Clay County. It's his family ranch. It's been in the Stein family for, gosh, 150 years. And, you know, there was quail on it when Jay was a, a kid, and there's quail on it today for, for my son to enjoy, who's seven. He saw his first uh, Bob Whites, and we're sitting in the, the deer blind this spring hog hunting, and, you know, that goes off, and 
Henry's like, Dad, what's that? And I was like, oh, that's a quail. And of course, I, I sent him over there, and um, he couldn't see him, but <laughs> I let him experience his first flush when he uh, startled that pair, and then you know he came back, his, his face just a little bit wider, and everyone that's been in uh, quail country has experienced that if you've hunted long enough. It's uh, something that'll make the, the hair on your arm stand up for sure. And, you know, you mentioned Clay County. That's that's about the eastern wall right there. If you go any further east than that, you're not going to find huntable populations of quail mm-hmm. uh, in Texas and Oklahoma kind of thing. So uh, we're at the uh, Highway 83 forms what I call it. It's what's the 100th meridian, basically. So it goes, and, and if you're west of that point, you're still in pretty good shape. If you're east of that point, from there, say, back over to about Weatherford or somewhere, you may have some recreational coveys. You may enjoy being able to see or hear one, but they're probably not at huntable levels kind of thing. And if you're further east of that point, you just long for the whistle of the Bob White so you can enjoy it while you're drinking your coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Dale. As far as like the importance of Quail Coalition, are there other organizations in other states that you um, bounce ideas off of, share research with that are what I would say local, that they keep the money raised in that area, that region, that state, because I think that that was kind of the disenfranchise, uh, disenfranchise meant with quail forever and uh, quail unlimited. And people are like, well, why am I dropping money into this organization when they're not putting it back on the ground where, where it's going to benefit the quail that I'm going to see or potentially see. So I don't know if there's other ones like quail coalition in, in other States, but I uh, figured I'd, I'd ask you, I think they're trying to plant the seed of a quail coalition over in that Georgia and Florida uh, plantation country over there. Uh-huh. I've heard some discussions about that. I'm not sure of the status. Uh, quail Unlimited imploded in about 2009, various reasons, uh, one of which was that Park City's quail said, yeah, we'll send you some money, but we're not going to send you 60 or 70%. We'll send you this amount. And they agreed to that. And then two years later, here's Park City's grossing $850,000 kind of thing. And then other chapters of Quail Unlimited in Texas looked at what Park City was doing and said, wait a minute, we want to do that. And that was basically the straw that broke, or one of the straws that broke Quail Unlimited's back. And when it imploded, well, there were other phoenixes rising from the ashes kind of thing. Uh, Obviously, Quail Coalition being a major one in Texas. There's one called Quail and Upland Habitat Federation somewhere up in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quail Forever, an offshoot of Pheasants Forever. Uh, is They have, I don't know, a number of chapters in Texas. I'm going to say maybe eight or ten. I could be wrong on that. So they haven't been a player with us. They haven't been as effective a fundraiser as Quail Coalition has. And like it or not, you know, we we got to chase the money kind of thing. And so Park Cities has been our our best dog as far as retrieving money to hand kind of uh-huh. thing. And so that's where we spent most of our time and effort. But there yeah. are some local Quail Forever chapters. And there's about, I think, Quail Coalition chapters. I think there's like 12 of those scattered across the state. The National Wild Turkey Federation uh, is effective at raising a lot of money. And some of that is probably going into habitat projects that benefits quail, but it may not have quail in its name. Mm-hmm. Well, so but do you have any colleagues in other states where you guys bounce off uh, research ideas or um, findings, success, failures? Oh, yeah, yeah. several ways of doing that is uh, the quail network is a fairly small group. I mean, we're not talking about 3,000 people. We're talk- probably talking about 300. So, you know, I I do that with my eQuail newsletter. I send it 
Mm-hmm. Not that anybody wants to uh, keep up with us like that. But there's a national um, by Northern Bob White Conservation Initiative, NBCI. And in fact, they're meeting, I think, right now here in mid-June up in uh, Missouri or somewhere. I didn't go to it this year. But that's where the biologists, the quail folks from various states come together. And they've been able to tout some successes. Uh, Kentucky, Missouri has had uh, some successes. Of course, the, the plantation country, again, what I refer to as Tall Timbers Research Station, uh, they've cracked the code on how to grow quail down there in the southeast. Hmm. And it consists of basically three things. One is burning every year or every other year, so habitat management. Two is intensive predator management. And three is intensive supplemental feeding. So they can grow quail, but it's very expensive. Too. Mm-hmm. So it probably costs in the neighborhood of 100 bucks an acre a year. Nobody in West Texas is going to spend that much. So hmm. we can probably we think we can produce quail much more cost effectively than hmm. what they can. But they've got a climate working for them that's you know predictable. We don't. Ours goes up and down like the Dow Jones kind of thing. So we have to be able to do it. Have to be able to struggle through the dry years and uh, take advantage of the better winter years. Um, as we are wrapping things up here, the last thing I want to ask is: as how do you guys document your quail counts? And I'm sure that. That's a detailed answer, but uh, something that I've always been interested in. If you're just, you know, driving around counting them, coveys running across the road, or if you're whistling to them, or um, what does that well, what does that look we, like? We have a number. We have about six different metrics that we measure at Rolling Plains Quail Research Range. Uh, starting off in the first year in March, we do helicopter counts. We've got every 200 yards across that ranch, we've got a We've got a transect, a GPS transect, and we're flying that. We're flying it at about 30 feet altitude and about 30 miles an hour, low and slow. Mm-hmm. And as the birds flush up, we record where they're at uh, over the time, and uh, we, can, we can actually calculate how many quail per acre we see like that. So that's one of the more intensive ways, but it's quick. And then we start doing the whistle counts in mid-May, and we do those from May 15th to July 1, the Bob White whistle counts. So we pull up to a particular what we call mile marker. We have 25 of those on the research ranch. Mm-hmm. And so the interns and technicians are out there at quarter six this morning, and they listen for five minutes. How many different Bob White whistles do I hear? That doesn't mean anything if you just do it one time. But we're taking an average over a long term, and so we can say we feel pretty good that our whistle counts, which is an index to the population, is higher this year, is 50% higher than it was two years ago kind of thing. So it allows us to track that. We do uh, our most intensive technique is trapping and leg banding. We have 247 trap sites on scattered across the ranch, and those are trapped. And we do all this under the legalities of a scientific collector's permit. So mm-hmm. this is not something you could do at home. Right. But uh, we trap we trapped 4,700 birds in 2016, and we leg banded every bird. So we know there's no ifs, ands, and buts. We had at least what we call the minimum known population of 4,719 birds or whatever the number was. And the fact that we then had some subsequent hunts, and we only shot all of the birds we shot, only 51% of them had leg bands on we had twice as many birds as what we thought. Hmm. So, uh, and then we do fall cubby call counts and roadside counts. Our roadside counts in September and our helicopter counts are, we think, our best two techniques. One of them uh, is is very fast, but it's expensive. The other one is a little slower, but it, it gave us just as good a day as the roadside counts did. Hmm. Okay. Well, the, uh, <laughs> a very broad spectrum of uh of ways that you gather data, for sure, no doubt about that. 
I, I do want to say thanks again to Quell Coalition and uh, the, especially the Park Cities chapter for making this interview possible and, and making so much of the, the research being conducted at the uh, Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch possible as well. So, uh, And folks can find them at quailcoalition.org. And uh, Dale, what does just the overall forecast for next season look like? And I know that's regional, but um, are you excited? Have we gotten timely rain? Or is it going to be uh, another down year like the past two? Well, it, it should be better than the last two years. I'm I'm not giddy about it just yet. We started out strong, and then we got hot and dry in June. Uh, really, in May and June, it was it was pretty bad. But we're at about our average precipitation. We just had that 50-day time period there where we didn't have much much rain at all. But and our chicks, we're just beginning to see them. So I don't get too excited if I haven't seen broods until July 4th. If I'm out, you know, riding around, whatever, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I am not flushing coveys by uh, July 4th. Then I begin to go, get a little concerned. I'm getting good numbers from our blue quail cooperators out further west and the Permian Basin. Haven't had many reports from South Texas, but it sounds the few that I've had were positive. And again, they'd be happy to repeat what they had last year because they were about an eight on a scale of one ten. Mm. Uh, if I had to weather a guess right now, uh, and it'd be just that, I would say our best hopes would be maybe for a seven this year for the rolling plains. Okay. Well, not uh, all doom and gloom, that's for sure. Um, I always appreciate your time, Dale. Thanks for coming on and, and talking Bob White and Blue Quail with us today. Certainly a treat, and I look forward to the next time. Okay, anytime. Just give me a holler. All right, there he goes, Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And Dale did tell me off the air, if you want to uh, subscribe to the e-newsletter or the monthly podcast, you can find links to both of those on their website at quailresearch.org. That segment of the show proudly brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it, whether that's to hunt quail, run cattle, go fishing, or just get the hell out of the big city. Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own slice of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Unfortunately, just looking at the clock, it's that time. We got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Dr. Dale Rollins, as well as our other guest today, Professor Walter Yetz of Yale University. We will do it again same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Lord loves the drinking man.